So, um, the next psalm in our current series of talks is Psalm 46, and we're going to read that shortly. But before we do that, I just want to highlight a couple of things that are actually true of all the psalms, I think. And it's something which makes them um, just a little bit difficult to understand at times. Um, firstly, we know that they are very old, um, which means that we don't always have a good understanding of context, um, why they were written, what events they're referring to sometimes, and what they actually meant to the uh, people at the time, people who were living in very different um, circumstances and a very different culture to us today. And the second thing, of course, is that they are poetry. And as a form of art, um, the Psalms are great at using words to create images and to provoke emotions, but just like modern poems and song lyrics, we shouldn't expect them to be quite as clear and prescriptive as, say, the letters written to the New Testament um, churches. But that's not to say that we can't get a lot out of the Psalms, um, but we just need to be careful in how we interpret them so we don't read more into them than uh, we're meant to. Here are four uh, little things that I think we should keep in mind. Firstly, there are things that we already know about God because other scriptures have spelt them out very clearly. So when we read the Psalms and other poetry of the Bible, we can simply enjoy the fact that there are many verses there that will often remind us of things that we already know about God, regardless of what the original intention of the passage um, was. And, and a, an example of that is in Lamentations. So it's not the Psalms, but it's a, another form of poetry. Lamentations 1 and 12, we have a verse which reminds us so clearly of Christ's suffering on the cross. And the verse gets quoted quite a lot. It says, Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look around and see. Is any suffering like my suffering that was inflicted on me? And the verse is actually about the suffering of Jerusalem, not the Lord Jesus. But as long as we don't forget that, we might choose to link it with Mark 15 and 29 and his description of people passing by the Lord Jesus on the cross and hurling their insults um, at him. So you get the, the point I'm, I'm making, that we can, we can profit from our reading of the Psalms, even if we get the wrong end of the stick, about what the passage was actually about. Secondly, some verses in the Psalms might be there just to stress a point by saying the same thing over and over again using different words. And therefore, we shouldn't assume that every verse is telling us something different and new. It could just be repeating the same thing in new and colourful ways, which is um, very much the nature of poetry. And that leads me to the third point, um, because sometimes poetic language, the poetic language of the Psalms, the rhythm and the metaphors and other literary devices that the psalmist might uh, use, they're all there to make the Psalms more enjoyable for reading or singing, um, for using with the audience that they're intended for. So we just need to be careful not to assume that every verse has a, a literal interpretation, and we do that anyway in Scripture. But um, if you look at modern songs and poetry, it's often the case that the best words for clarity of meaning, that they're often sacrificed for the sake of the, the rhyme or the rhythm of the, um, of the poem or the song. And we just need to be um, aware of that when we, when we read the Psalms. 
And the fourth thing, is just a final thing, uh, is that we know that despite the inspiration of Scripture in the original languages of the Bible, we are dependent on modern scholars uh, for our English translations. And there's always a risk that um, meanings can be lost in translation. And that's especially true when it comes to poetry, because the translators rely quite a lot on their understanding of what words are likely to be used in a certain context to work out what word in the ancient Hebrew language um, the original writer intended. And that's doubly hard with poetry, where the writer might have come up with all sorts of weird and wonderful metaphors. Uh, it just makes it harder to understand, um, harder for the translators to understand what um, the writer meant compared with a writer just giving, telling a story or, or giving us instructions. And so, with all that in mind, before we look at the psalm, I just want to read a few verses from 2 Corinthians 5, because I think they have a similar message for us to the one that we have in Psalm 46. It is quite different, but I think there are overlaps in what we might take from these two passages uh, for our personal encouragement. Now, there's still a bit of a poetic vibe going on in the, uh, in the New Testament passage because Paul uses the metaphor of a tent um, to describe the temporary bodies that we're currently uh, living in, so to speak. But it's an easy to understand metaphor, and I think it's a bit easy to see what the passage in Corinthians is saying compared with the psalm. Anyway, you can make your own judgment about that as we go through. I think both passages are helpful to us. And each of them can help our understanding of the other. Um, let me read the 2 Corinthians 5 um, passage. It's the first six verses. And I'm going to emphasise the words which I think have similarities with the psalm. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul writes, For we know that if the earthly tent that we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead of our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned, has designed, made, um, fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, Paul says, we are always confident and know that as long as we are away, we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Now, I'm not going to say anything more about the passage, but hopefully you'll recognise some of those similarities as we go through the psalm now. So let's read the psalm. Psalm 46. I'm going to read from verse 1. You might see as we go through this psalm the reason why I wanted to give that little introduction um, because I think it is one of the more difficult ones to, to read. So verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, 
the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns and shield the shield with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I think we can split the psalm into two sections. The first verses 1 to 6, is a profession of faith in God. And the second refers briefly to some of the facts which support that faith. So we're going to look at each of those um, sections in turn. So let's start firstly with the profession of faith that we see in the first few verses. It's a declaration of the psalmist's confidence, and that's the word we saw in 2 Corinthians, um, the 2 Corinthians passage, his confidence in God's ability to save his people no matter what. And we see faith in divine help, faith in divine purpose, and faith in divine sovereignty. The faith in divine help, I think we see in verses 1 to 3. He says in verse 1 that God is our refuge, that's our, our place of safety. And I think that both the psalmist and Paul saw that as applying in their present circumstances as well as um, a future aspect. The psalmist said that God is also our strength. He provides us with the inner strength and the ability to ensure all sorts of difficulties and hardships. And Paul is encouraging a similar strength and Paul's using the perspective that we now have um, because of the gospel to encourage that inner strength, the knowledge of what is temporary compared with what is eternal. And the psalmist said that God is ever-present, that he's always there for us. And Paul refers to us having the Holy Spirit living inside us. God can't be any more present than that, can he? As the Lord Jesus promised in Matthew 28, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So the psalmist had faith in divine help, but what kind of help can we reasonably expect from the Lord? We know that he hasn't promised to take away our difficulties. That's what Paul knew when he wrote to the Corinthians about us groaning and being burdened and longing for the next life. We can't expect an easy life, can we? However, Although Jesus said in John 16 that in this world you will have trouble, he also said, take heart, I've overcome the world. He said in the same verse, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace, to freedom from anxiety about difficulties and troubles. And we also have that lovely verse in Hebrews 4 and 16. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. How the Lord helps us in any particular situation isn't always clear, um, not clear in those verses anyway, but here's one way that um, James refers to in James chapter one. He starts by encouraging a positive attitude towards 
the inevitability of different um, difficult times. He, he says, whenever you face trials, not if you face trials. So there is that inevitability. But then he highlights that there are positives that can come from trials. He talks about how when our faith is tested, that can produce perseverance and ultimately lead to us being more mature as Christians. But he also refers to the help that's available. Because James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, and I assume that's the wisdom to know just what to do in a difficult situation. Sometimes that not knowing what to do adds to the difficulty, doesn't it? It's the anxiety of knowing that there must be something we can do, but I don't know what to do, and will it make it worse if I do this thing or the other? Um, and, and James says, if you lack wisdom, then you should ask God, who gives generously. So even from those few verses, we can see that in any difficulties that we face in this life, there is the promise of help if we ask for it. There is the promise of wisdom so we can know what to do for the best. There is the knowledge that the time that we have to endure anything in this life, um, which is difficult, is limited because Jesus is the victor, the great overcomer. And we have that perspective that these bodies and this world is only our temporary home. Um, Again, as we read earlier, we have the promise and the guarantee of an eternal home. And Paul said that we can be confident in that. I'm conscious that we've not spent a lot of time reading and looking at the psalm yet, but I wanted to kind of set the scene on why we need to have the same faith as the psalmist. I wanted to remind us that although we don't live in the time and the circumstances of God's Old Testament people, when they were constantly threatened by their by their enemies, we do live in the times described in the New Testament scriptures. And there will be times when we might need to believe with all our hearts that God is our refuge and strength, our ever-present help in trouble. But let's go back to the psalm now and see what it says about the limitations that we can expect on the help that God is able to give us in this life. The limitations how is God's help to us limited? Well, what do we read about that in the psalm? We don't read anything, do we? There's nothing in the psalm about limitations. And in fact, the psalmist doesn't waste time listing the smaller day-to-day -day difficulties that we might have. He goes straight to a scene that would be worthy of any Hollywood blockbuster movie. Um, and, and interestingly, it's a scene that he could not possibly have ever witnessed. So there seems to be a bit of a prophetic element to this poem, which makes it even more relevant for our times. He says, in effect, even if it looks like the end of the world is coming, we will not fear. Verse 2. Verse two. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. We will not fear. That's an amazing statement of faith, isn't it? And like I said, more than ever before, I think it's relevant for our times. With the wars and rumours of wars constantly in the news, of economic and political crises likewise, and with the consequences of global warming, or global boiling, as it's been described more recently uh, by scientists, uh, very much evident. We can see these things with our own eyes. And there are many things which might cause us to be fearful. So this is relevant for our times. 
And we know that in one way or another, these are the consequences of sin, the cursed earth that Genesis 3 talks about, and the consequences of the behaviours of fallen, the fallen human race. Um, as I said in Romans 8, we know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. And uh, we also groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Paul's referring there to the same perspective that he wrote to the Corinthians about. The assurance that any kind of suffering in this life is only temporary, even if it doesn't feel like it at the time. Let's go back to the psalm now and see what else the, the psalmist had faith in. We thought about his faith in divine help in the most difficult of circumstances, but rather than wanting God to take away those difficulties, he also had faith in their divine purpose. He knew that even if the absolute worst should happen, the end of the world stuff that we read about in verses uh, 2 and 3, he says that there is a river which flows towards the end goal, the joy of the city of God. Now that's an interpretation of the psalm that uh, comes with all the caveats that I mentioned at the beginning. But the reference to the river follows on from all the catastrophes that we read about in the previous verses. And there are other verses in the Bible, of course, which make this point more clearly. But in the poetic language of the psalm, it seems to be saying that despite the roaring and the surging waters which make the very mountains quake, we have in their midst something which is controlled and peaceful. A flowing river which is moving within its boundaries and moving steadily towards its destination. Such are the purposes of God. And it says in Romans 8, verse that we probably know well, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And that takes me to the third expression of faith. We've got three altogether. We have faith in divine help, faith in divine purpose, and the psalmist also talks about his faith in divine sovereignty. The only reason there can be a peaceful, controlled river in the face of all that chaos, and it's the same if we apply that metaphor for us today, is because the sovereign God is absolutely in control. Whether it be God's determined will, as we sometimes refer to it, the things that he makes happen, or his permissive will, that we sometimes describe it as, the things that he allows to happen, the things that he doesn't prevent, he is still sovereign. He is always in control. You know, it's not only the planet which is in decay, is it? As I said earlier, we also have the human factor. Uh, wars and rumours of wars, economic and political crises, um, the breakdown of law and order. As it says in verse 6, the nations are in uproar. And we've got powerful nations like China and Russia who think they can do whatever they want. And let's not leave out from that America and Iran and Israel and Europe and military alliances like NATO and so on and so on. They rise up with all their power and arrogance. And all it takes is a word from the Sovereign Lord and they fall back down. 
they melt away. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. So we've been thinking about the psalmist's um, profession of faith. That God is in control and that nothing can stop him achieving his purposes. And it's great to know, isn't it, that those purposes include providing help and refuge for his people. The psalmist believed in an all-powerful, sovereign God. Was that faith well placed? Should we have such a faith? Or is it just wishful thinking? What are the facts which support that faith? The psalmist says in verse 8, Come and see. Now, this is where in verses 8 and 9 there is some speculation about what the specific historical circumstances might have been which led to the writing of the psalm. There are a couple of events in the Old Testament described that some people think might be the events that inspired the, um, the psalm. The truth is, we don't know. But regardless of that, there is plenty of evidence throughout the scriptures, isn't there, for us to come and see and to know with confidence that God is very much in control. We can see that evidence in the way that God rescued Israel from Egypt with his powerful outstretched hand, uh, the way God went before them and protected them and gave them the promised land, driving out their enemies. We see it throughout the Old Testament in other interventions that God made for the sake of his people and sometimes in judgment of his people. Then in the New Testament, we see it in the miracles that Jesus did, uh, the evidence of his power over nature, whether it be turning water into wine at a wedding or healing people or silencing a storm with just his words. And then we have the event which um, has been said um, that there is more evidence for this event than there is for anything in ancient history. And a lot, of, a lot more evidence than there is for a lot of events which we wouldn't even call ancient history. I'm talking about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and his subsequent resurrection and ascension. The death, resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus. And that's probably, not probably, it is, isn't it, the most important one uh, for us. Uh, and we don't have time to look at 1 Corinthians 15, but if you have another read through that amazing chapter, you'll see some parallels with the psalm that we're, we're looking at. Statements of faith about what had been received and believed and preached. And then the evidence which gives us the assurance that not only has Christ been raised, but that we also will be raised. And that is, of course, the perspective that I've been referring to that should help us with some of the challenges of life. And that brings me to verse 10 and 11 of the psalm. Verse 11 repeats verse 7, and they both build on verse 1. In verse 1, we thought about God's ever-presence. He's always with us and that he is able to help us in any kind of trouble. And likewise, verses 7 and 11 describe God as our, our fortress in the present tense. So he's our present fortress, the place of refuge and strength that we we read about in verse 1, not just now, but way off into the future, because he is the Lord Almighty. And we can take our confidence from that, can't we? And everything else in the psalm, which leads up to the encouragement of verse 10, 
where God says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still. So, no matter what unrest we um, see going on in the world around us, the economic things, wars, civil unrest, climatic impacts of global warming which are going to and are affecting us all, we can nevertheless be still and know that our God is God and that he is exalted and that he is sovereign and that he is in control and as such he is the only one able to guarantee our future, isn't he? If by faith we accept his invitation. So let me just leave you now, my time's gone, um, but leave you with the question that hopefully I've already answered somewhat in what I've said today. Is it possible to be still and quiet and to know God and to hear him speaking to us today in a world where there seems to be so much turmoil? It's more than possible, isn't it? Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will 